0: As we are moving through the Epiphany season, last week we we pondered the baptism of Jesus as he was the representative of Israel and of all mankind. He represented us and, like our eldest brother, went on our behalf, uh, on behalf of the family, into the waters of repentance. Matthew, Mark, and Luke... Sometimes they're called the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they each tell that right after that, after Jesus came up from the baptism, he went out into the wilderness. And he was there for 40 days in preparation for the mission that he had been given as the Christ, as the Messiah. So he's commissioned for it, he's anointed for it, and then he goes out into the wilderness... In preparation, there he faced the devil's temptations to try to, the devil's trying to discern his power and discern what he's doing and to divert him from whatever this mission is. And after these trials, after Jesus has been out in the wilderness, John picks up at the moment when he returned from the wilderness and he comes back to the Jordan River where the baptisms had happened. And he comes there to walk among those that God had been preparing for his mission. Through John the Baptist's ministry. These were, they called themselves the disciples of John the Baptist. They were preparing for the Christ. And so Jesus comes back to that setting. And here was a crowd wanting the Messiah, wanting transformation. They had, they, these were people who wanted They wanted to receive what John had been saying was coming. And they believed him, that soon one would come with a task to winnow the people. And he would take Israel, and winnowing is crushing, it's great, crushing, and then tossing into the air so that the breeze takes away the chaff. John said, this is what the Christ will do for Israel and what will be left is a new kingdom. These people wanted that. They wanted the crushing. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts, they all rejoin the movements of Jesus uh, once he's back in Galilee. But John gives us this moment where he is with the disciples of John, John the Baptist, who are ready to, to hear what he has to say. Only John of the Gospel accounts relates these moments, these early months of Jesus' ministry. um, Before John the Baptist was thrown in jail because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all signal Jesus goes back to Galilee when John is put in prison. He's not in prison here. So here he appears back on the scene by the river, having been gone for about a month, you know, a little more than a month. And in that time, John the Baptist had been putting off the the scribes and Pharisees, Jewish leaders, who were asking if he might be the Messiah. And John has said to them very clearly, No, 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 not me. I am not worthy to untie his sandal. I'm his herald. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way. And then the gospel says, the next day, after he'd been putting them off, the next day, he sees Jesus coming towards him. And he cries out, There! Behold the Lamb of God! This is the one. This is the one who comes to take away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself didn't know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Here, this is the reason I've been doing all of this baptizing and preaching and teaching. And then he relates, seeing the Holy Spirit's anointing at Jesus' baptism and hearing the Lord's declaration of his kingship. What an explosion that was. Because it's in text. We can just read right quickly past it. But the forerunner, that's why I was loud a second ago, now shouts the arrival. This is a big deal. The long-awaited one, the whole reason for what we've been doing here by the river, here. So for all of you who've become John's disciples, this is the moment we've been waiting for. Beyond that moment... They didn't have much of a clear idea of how this ministry, this mission would take shape. Um, but this is what they waited for. They knew, they knew, there's going to be big-time change. What that looks like, don't know. Certainly it's going to be volatile, we may say. John had said, he's going to baptize you with fire. That, that's not calm baptizing with fire, having a winnowing fork. That could go all sorts of directions. But what John had prepared them for was to take on a new master. He must increase. I must decrease. It's a handoff. So now that Jesus is back on the scene, it's, the time has come, and John begins to recede, his mission done. And he wants, John wants, it is his greatest desire to hand these disciples off to the Messiah. Exciting moment. Today, I want to consider another dynamic of that moment. John the Baptist is a prophet. It's what he's, it's who he is. And each time he sees Jesus approach, he says that same thing. Verses 29 and 36 in chapter 1 of John, he shouts in the spirit as a prophet, behold the Lamb of God. It's a prophetic pronouncement. It becomes very obvious through the Gospels that nobody really understood what that meant. What what is this pronouncement? Jesus did. Jesus knew. And This urges us, I think, um, to ponder and to worship. I hope that's what we'll come come out of here uh, is a a sense of awe at our Lord. So as I said, Jesus has just spent 40 days in the wilderness and, and then undergoing temptation. When he went there, he had just received that the mantle of the Christ, the anointing, um, the role of being the king who saves. As as we noted last week, he has always been the incarnate God. uh, From his birth, he's the incarnate God. In the womb, he's the incarnate God. At the baptism, he receives a commission, anointing, to be the king who saves. So what do you think after... After that dramatic experience of the heavens being torn open, the Spirit descending, the, the Father speaking from the heavenlies, and he goes out into the wilderness, what do you think he thought about out there? Seems like he would think about and work through and talk to the Father about what that ministry, what that mission would look like. What's the, how is this ministry going to go? It seems likely that he would ponder the words of the prophets, the words that he had spoken to them a thousand years before, 700 years before. He's going to work through He's thinking through. He's presenting to the Father. He's asking for insight into how to fulfill that ministry. And so, chiefly, the words of Isaiah were on his mind. He was working through the words of Isaiah the prophet. Part of the reason we know this is because in the the first messages that he gives, the sermons that he gives, it's Isaiah that he quotes. This is what the mission of the Messiah looks like. And there's a set of prophecies called the servant songs. These are, uh, were understood by all of Israel, all the teachers of Israel. These prophecies of Isaiah are about the Christ, the Messiah. They're detailed. Everyone knew that this was about the promised king. The one we know best here at this great remove is Isaiah 53. We Um, It's always part of our holy week. It's always around Easter. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each and every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter like a sheep, that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In the wilderness, these run through Jesus' mind. He knows that they're true. He, he knows it's going to be fulfilled. He had weighed them. He'd felt the heaviness of their import. He knew what it meant to be the Lamb of God. And so with his father steadying his will for obedience, for the full task of the king, the king who dies for his subjects, Jesus comes back from the wilderness to the river with that mission in mind. So when John the Baptist shouts, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is there, seeing it, knowing what it means. He knows what it means to be the Lamb of God. If we left it right there, with the crushing of the servant, with the servant bearing our transgressions, carrying our afflictions, the removal of sin, freedom from condemnation, that's all. That is good. He would be our Redeemer. But if we left it there, We would be missing the joy that was set before him. And we would not understand our Christ. We would not understand our servant king. We wouldn't understand why he went about his mission the way he did. Why didn't he just rush to his death? Because he had joy to give. There's more to this mission. We would be missing what he came to restore we would miss the boundless glory of Christ's kingdom. The Lord Jesus was able to run the race that was set before him because he knew the joy. He knew what it was for. So when Jesus heard, Behold the Lamb of God, he also heard the rest of the servant songs. Not just the crushing, not just the affliction, so turn with me to Isaiah 49. Another of the servant songs this was read to us this morning. Here we have a fuller picture of Christ's mission. And what we'll see is that this ministry that's shown in Isaiah 49 it has two parts. It has a vision of the glorious end of what will be. It has a vision of restoration. But it also has a glimpse of the way there, which is not so nice. How these prophecies work, and we don't read prophecies very well. Post-Enlightenment people don't handle prophecy well. Uh, the, Isaiah the prophet has a vision. He sees something and he hears something. And then he records those. Um, I think the easiest one to get a hold of is when David acts as a prophet, uh, Psalm 110. He says, he sees, he sees and he hears and he records, The Lord said to my Lord. He's not talking about himself. He says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David is seeing the father say to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's not about him. This is how prophecy works. So David glimpses the father addressing the son. Isaiah, like that, is given prophetic insight to a conversation between the father and the son, between the father and the Christ, the suffering servant. Again, this is how all of ancient Israel understood this prophecy. This is of of the Christ to come. In the first five verses, uh, the servant king, the son, who they knew to be, this is the Christ, says, Listen to me, O coastlands. That's Tyre and Sidon, Philistia. Listen to me, you that ring the Mediterranean world. Give attention, you peoples, far away. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He carries the name of the Lord. So see how the servant king, he knows his calling from the beginning. The Christ knows what he's about. He knows who he is. He knows what he's to do. He knows that the power to speak and the power to act Come from the Father. He's equipped. He says, My mouth is like a sharp sword. My mouth is like a sword. He knows that He is empowered. The Father made me a polished arrow, and in His quiver He hid me. I, I have the power of the Father, and He will use me. And He has the covenant promise of the Father You are my servant. Israel, in whom I will be glorified. What's he saying? You are my servant. You you servant king. You are Israel. In you, all the promises that I've made to Israel will be fulfilled. It's in you. You stand for Israel. And so every covenant, every promise that has been made will come about, will come to fruition in you. Through you, I will be known as the God who has steadfast love towards his people, who fulfills all his promises. I am hit then with the weight of verse 4. But I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. The promises are going to be fulfilled, but this is also part of the Christ's mission. This vain expense of life-giving words, the pouring out of life-giving words, goodness—just goodness, like water on on hard ground, water on rock that just seems to flow, flow away. Holding out the offer of peace, holding out forgiveness, holding out. Restoration with God. Holding out everlasting joy to have people just turn away and say, thank you, but no thank you. That's good, but I prefer something else. I prefer someone else. I prefer another story. And, And even if I end in misery, I hear you. Even if I end in misery, at least I won't have to say, "You helped me, because I don't want that. I don't want to be helped. And you're offering help. It's one of the recurring notes of Jesus through the Gospels is it's pain. "Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem," He says, "You that kill the prophets, and you stone those who are sent to you. How often How often would I have gathered you under my wings like a Hen gathers her chicks, and you would not. Or when he says, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to bear with you? How long am I to endure your rejecting life? He heals, and he's called a demon. He brings people back to life. And it's said to be from the power of the enemy. And he's hated. He offers peace with God for the nation. Restoration with God. And they plot to kill him. It's part of Christ's mission to say, I have labored in vain. There is no, the mission of the servant king doesn't happen without this. It's part of it. Rejection. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. It's picked up later. Surely he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That was his path. But have you also said that of yourself? If you've walked as a Christian for very long, you've probably said that of yourself. Because if we've been made part of him, if we are in him, if he is in us, then, it's part, then part of the servant king's experience is ours too. So we, we can't avoid it. It's part of our life as Christians. We would like to, it's painful, I can't stand it sometimes. I really don't like rejection. When somebody turns away from me. When they when they say and they, they say it in words or they say it in actions or they, they just disappear. and they say, no, thank you. I know what you I know what you're offering. I hear you. But no thank you. There's another version I prefer. I get this empty pit in my stomach. Happened this week. It's, just, it's a pit, a little stab, and and there's this feeling of futility. You know it. You know the feeling. It's that word, vanity. I just, am I just going to continuously pour out? What, I, what goodness and hope and truth and, and they're just turning away? And I, I tell myself, it is, it is futile to give. It is, I should, I should stop. Because why not just protect your heart? That's easier. Just protect. Don't give and you'll be protected. Don't share what is most precious to you. You'll be protected. That's part of the experience of being found in Jesus Christ. It is the path he walked. And so to be of his kingdom is also to be a misfit in the fallen lands, in the shadowy place. But look. Look how this gets swallowed up. We can't stay there. <laughs> we can't, even in verse 4, the Lord doesn't even let us camp out there very long. Because in verse 4, it, it turns. Yet, surely, my right is with the Lord and my recompense is with my God. So the servant king and us, his followers, our right, our vindication, our recompense is with the Lord. It's with God himself. It's not from broken values. It's not from a broken order. For the Lord says, I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. My God has become my strength. He says in verse five, my God has become my strength. So the pain of his labors is brief. Honor goes on forever. That's us too. That's for us. Honor goes on forever. So even the vanity of speaking to those who reject him, and this then unfolds, his ministry unfolds, the mission unfolds, even that vanity of speaking becomes part of the plan. It's part of the mission. Rejection from the Jews drives the gift, drives the grace outward. It's here in the prophecy, verse 6, the Father says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. You deeply despised one, you rejected and hated and abhorred by the the nation, kings will bow before you so those words the works that were poured out all of that that seemed to be vain because it met with rejection it seemed to be futile being the, the being despised the being abhorred it's not futile it's part of the plan those words and those works, this, this is wonderful. Those words and those works that are poured out are signs. They stand like signs of the abundant grace of God. So much is his grace. It's, it, you, it can't be quantified. It's infinite. It can be poured out because there's more. His love and his care are so great that those unyielding hearts, the hearts that are like stone, they become like channels. You've seen this in the hills. The harder the rock, the better it flows as a channel to others. The hardness of those hearts takes his grace elsewhere. He will continually pour. And so where there is rejection... Even the rejection becomes signs of the abundance of grace. And the king the king who was rejected by the tiny kingdom of Judea, or the, the smallness of Judea is hard for us to get a hold of. We're talking about the treasure, the size of the treasure valley. That's the kingdom of Judea. What, what an outsized role is played in the history of the world. But the rejection of that kingdom becomes for the world the opening that that will bring to this king honor of all mankind. This king will receive the worship of angels and archangels, principalities and powers, kings of all the nations. Everyone will bow before him, though he was rejected by Judea. So we conclude with this. Even as we share in those sufferings and we share in the rejection, we share in that sense of labor that is vain and maybe we've said to a beloved family member or a friend countless times, we've told them about the goodness of God and your your words that are meant to be goodness are received like hostility. That sense that we share with Christ, we also share in his glory. We get it all. We get the rejection, but we get the honor. So when Jesus heard, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he knew there would be suffering, but the big message was what it was for to bring joy, to restore all mankind, restoration and honor. And that's ours too. So, as we're in him and he is in us, we are honored in the eyes of the Lord. He looks on us with pleasure, with delight. Our God has become our strength. Let's let's now, let's, Pull those in. We are in Christ, and so what he has said is ours too. Our God has become our strength. Like Paul said in Paul picked this up in Pisidian Antioch and as he's preaching to the, the synagogue there, and he says, we, Paul and Barnabas, we are a light to the nations. Well, that was said of Christ. Paul is applying that because he is in Christ and he knows it. The message of Christ is his message. So we too are a light to the nations The salvation may be known to the ends of the earth. Yes. So though you may feel deeply despised at times I sympathize yet we are caught up in the glories of Christ the delight of the Father for the Son that delight is ours too. He delights in us. His plan is our plan. His mission is our mission. Salvation will go to the ends of the earth. We get to be part of it. We get to be light bearers. We participate in his redeeming work. And we do that by yielding to him. Yielding. He is the light. He is in us. Being light. And so we look to him as the light that he is. And we let him be our good above every other good. I'll say that again. We let him be our good above every other good. This is how his light grows in us. We look to him. He is our good, he is the one in whom we place our faith. He is the one who turns our sorrows into dancing. If we look to other things for our good, and we make sacrifices that we may lay hold of those other things, good though they may be, they will go bad on us. They're not meant, they're not light-bearing. They're reflectors. Only Jesus is light-bearing. Only he is worthy of making sacrifices for he is our good above every other good. And he turns our rejection, the losses that we sustain, into embracing. Lord, uh, we, we see through a dim mirror. We, we do not see with great clarity, but we ask for more. We ask that we might see more clearly, that we might weigh and value things more accurately. That we might look for you where you are. We might be ever saying, behold, there, there's the lamb. Lord, let us see you as you're at work around us. Lord, we ask that you would show us those in whom you are working, that we might join you in that. We don't want futile labors. Lord, would you give us fruitful labor? But where, where you do bring us to times of futility and pouring out words on the ground, please give us grace for those, grace for that time. Mercy towards those who reject us and remind us, that in, in your weighing, those words have done the work you've set them to do. Make us faithful people in Jesus' name.